um, that, oh, we have the same power that raised Christ from the dead. But I really want us to think about that tonight. For God makes very clear in his word that he's given us power for those who believe in him. And in fact, Paul's prayer that he writes the church in Ephesus in this verse is that they would begin to understand the greatness of power that God has for them. And the same prayer is being echoed for us as the church today that may we begin to understand the power that God has given us. Because sometimes I think we fail to understand that God has given us this great, incredible, mighty power, that he's given us a source of power. And sometimes we are not even aware of the resources that God has already given us. We're not even aware that we have this power flowing through our veins. And that's why Paul prays, I pray that you will begin to understand that this power is on the inside of you. And that's our prayer here tonight, is that we would begin to understand that this power is in the inside of you, of every single believer here in this room. And he's not just given us just this like small little dose of power that's like average or subpar, but it's an incredible, great source of power. And we often fail to understand that, we often fail to grasp that, and we often go about our days completely unaware of that power. As we cannot walk in the power of God if we do not understand that it has already been given to us. As you can't live your lives in the power of God if you don't know that God has given you that power. And God has given us the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and enabled him to sit at the right hand of the Father. And that, again, that's like a cliche in the church, but think about that for a second. The same power that raised Christ from the dead. Like the same power that raised Christ from the dead after he was crucified, after he was beaten until he no longer looked like a human. The same power that allowed Christ to overcome death and the grave after he was already buried for three days. Like, all those things are impossible. Like, how does that even happen? And yet that same power that overcome death, that overcome the grave, that did the impossible, is the same power that's in us. And that's the same power that we have access to. And notice that this incredible, great, mighty power described here is only available for those who believe in Jesus. It's not something that everybody and anyone can have access to. It's only for those who believe in him. Believers in Christ have a source of power that those of this world do not have access to. We here in this room have access to the same power that raised Jesus from the grave that those outside of this don't have access to. As we are empowered by God, when we believe in him in ways the rest of the world is not. We have that distinction. We have that ability to be set apart in that way. Because if you look at Luke 10, 19, it says, Look, I have given you authority over all the power of the enemy, and you can walk among snakes and scorpions and crush them, and nothing will injure you. Jesus said that to us, that he has given us authority over all the power of the enemy. And the enemy cannot overcome the people of God. And the enemy has no authority over those who follow Jesus. That means sickness, disease, sin, temptation, deception, 
lies, whatever other scheme of the enemy that you can think of, we have been given authority over it. And that's something that we possess as believers. It's something that Jesus has already given us. And this power and authority is only just a few things that God has given to us and promised us as believers. As in the novel, if you go back and read it later, John Bevere provides a more expansive list of promises that God has made to us. For an example, he has promised us joy and peace beyond comprehension. He has promised us well-being and vitality. He has promised us safety. He's promised us wholeness and freedom from sickness and disease. These are all the things that he's promised us, and the list just keeps going on and on and on. And we are promised the attributes found in heaven. All these things that God has promised us, they are found in heaven and they have been given to us. However, the point of tension is, is when we look at our lives individually and when we look at the church as an overall whole, do we see these qualities? Do we see power and authority? Do we see joy and peace? Do we see stability? Do we see divine wisdom? Do we see people exhibiting the divine nature of God? When we look at our own lives, we look at the church as a whole, do we see all these attributes that God has promised us, that he has called us to? As we may be promised the attributes in heaven, but these qualities, if we're honest with ourselves, do not seem to be manifesting on the micro or the individual level. If we're honest, we seem to be living beneath the calling and the promises that God has given us. That we don't often see believers walking around in power and in authority. We don't see believers exhibiting the characteristics of God. We don't see joy and peace manifesting. We don't see people, you know, Christians having a distinction of joy and peace in a time of sorrow. And we don't see Christians with lives marked by abundance and marked by health. Jesus said that he has come so that we may have life and that we may have life more abundant. Is that a promise from him? He has promised us an abundant life, but often we seem to live with lack. We often seem to live with not enough. That abundance seems to be something that is separate from our lives. And just as there is only one thing that can stop Superman, there is a kryptonite in our lives that is weakening both individuals and the body of Christ as a whole. There is a kryptonite within our lives that is preventing us from fulfilling the calling and the purpose that God has given us as children of God. And there is a kryptonite that is causing this discrepancy between the lives we're currently living and the life that we are called and could live. As God has called us to live a life full of power, authority, blessing, and hope, but when we look at our current lives, there seems to be this huge gap, this huge dis discrepancy between where we are and what God has called us to be. And the purpose of this book is to identify what that kryptonite is. How do we eliminate it from our lives? And that's what we're going to be discussing in later weeks is exactly what kryptonite is and how it weakens us and how it affects us. And so that's why you guys need to keep coming week after week because these kind of teachings just build on each other. And so I'm just providing you an introduction. So if you want more, you're going to have to come back next week. But my job here tonight is just to acknowledge that we have a potential that we're not even aware of. 
that we have been given a power that we do not fully understand and that we haven't fully grasped and that we have a potential in God that includes unimaginable possibilities. We are just not aware of it yet. And I'm here to acknowledge that we seem to be falling short of what our lives as Christians could be, of what is possible, of what promises God has given us that we just haven't obtained yet. As here are some examples within the Bible of people who walk in this abundance and blessing and hope and joy of God. And these are found within the Bible, and John Bevere includes these within the novels, and I'm going to share these with you guys tonight to see that it is possible. And so, during the reign of King Solomon, back in the Old Testament, it says, the scripture says there was a time when silver was as common as stone and considered worthless because there was such an abundance and such a surplus of it. As it's found in 1 Kings chapter 10, uh, verse 21. And it says, all of King Solomon's drinking cups were solid gold as were all the utensils in the palace of the forest of Lebanon. And they were not made of silver, for silver was considered worthless in Solomon's day. And I'm going to skip down to verse 27 of the same book, same chapter. And it says, The king made silver as plentiful in Jerusalem as stone. Okay, and so if you think about that, like, that's crazy. Like, silver was as plentiful as stone during the reign of King Solomon. Like, the gravel outside that you see, like, silver was as abundant as, like, stones outside, as gravel outside. That it was such a surplus of it that it was considered worthless. It was meaningless. And I don't know if you guys have tried to buy silver today, but it's not cheap, you know? Like, it's not, like, something that is worthless for us today, but for them, it was. Silver didn't mean anything. They had so much of it, so much wealth, so much abundance, that Solomon just had to use gold. He had to make all of his utensils and plates out of gold just to be special, just to be distinct as king. And we're probably thinking, like reading this, just as I did when I read it, like, wow, that must be nice. Like, having all this silver laying around, having this abundant supply of silver, like, that must be nice. But this is not just a single occurrence in the Old Testament. Like, this isn't just a one-time thing that we see. But there are many generations of God's people in the Old Testament who flourished and prospered in astonishing ways. They prospered economically, socially, militarily. Like every single, if we read in the Old Testament, God's people lived in prosperity and abundance and blessings at certain times. And we have to remember that this was in the Old Covenant. This was pre-Jesus. This was back in the Old Testament. This isn't even... Like when Jesus shows up, this is just Old Testament. This is just Old Covenant. But we as believers today are under a new covenant with better promises, with a better mediator. As that's what it says in Hebrew 8.6. It says, But now Jesus, our high priest, has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood. For he is the one who mediates a far better covenant with God based on better promises. And so if we see these things in the Old Testament, if we see these things under the Old Covenant, imagine what kind of promises we have under the New Covenant through Jesus. Imagine what kind of life 
we can live through Jesus. Because he has given us better promises than what the people in the Old Testament experienced. He has given us a better life, a more abundant life than even what we see in the Old Testament. So why don't we see it today in our own lives? Is we are under a better covenant and we can live in these better promises that Jesus has given us. And if you want to look for an example in the New Testament of under the new covenant, you can look in the early church in the book of Acts. As when we read that we see that they also had no lack, that they too lived in abundance, that they too were not in need or in lack, that they also walked in the power of God. For I want to look at Acts chapter 4, verse 33 through 34. So this is an example in the New Testament in the book of Acts. And it says, The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all. And there were no many people among them, because those who owned land and houses would sell them. And so I want to emphasize the part that says God's great blessing was upon them all and that there were no needy people among them. So they experienced no lack. They, they didn't go without, but they lived under God's blessing and every single one of them were blessed. And plus the apostles turned the world upside down and they aggressively advanced the kingdom of God. As John Bevere writes, that the citizens of this world viewed the early church as supermen and superwomen of their generation. And even Jesus, who we are supposed to live like, changed communities wherever he went. Everywhere he went, he made a difference. He made an impact. And he never lacked what was necessary to meet any need. He never went without Yes, he may have not had a house to call his own, but he was always taken care of, and he always had resources, and he never was unable to meet somebody else's need. And we can live under the same provision, the same power, the same blessing that we see here in the early church, that we see here through Jesus, and that even greater than what we saw in the Old Testament. We can live in that same kind of abundance and blessing and power from God. And when we look at those examples that I just showed you of the early church and King Solomon, we become more aware of how we're living below the calling and the purpose that God has given us. Because when we look at those examples of people prospering and living in abundance and being blessed, and we look at our own lives, we see that there is a distinction, that there is a falling short of what God has called us to, of what our lives could really be, of what God has truly promised us. And we are living beneath our potential and we are settling for less than what God has promised us. And John Bevere poses, he entitles chapter one, the avoided question. And there's a question, a series of questions that are posed within the novel that are important that we look at tonight and that we consider. It says, do we have a significant difference between the people of God and the people of the world? Do followers stand out? Like if we're in a crowded room, do we stand out in our actions, our behaviors, our thoughts, how we respond to people? Do we see character, integrity, and morality that are dramatically different from the corruption of our world? 
Is there a distinction between believers and unbelievers in health, well-being, abundance of resources? Is there a distinction? Is there a set-apartness? And do our lifestyles differ from those in society? Are we different? Are we set apart? And there should be a clear distinction between the church and the world. There should be a clear distinction between how we act and how we live versus how the world lives and how they act. And I know these are some tough questions to face and some even harder answers to deal with, but it's not something that we can just avoid and ignore anymore. Because these promises are intended for us today just as much as they were for the early church or for the Old Testament. And we have access to the same power. We have access to the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Why wouldn't we want to live in that? Why wouldn't we want to have our lives affected by that? And another question we need to ask is, are we as effective as the early church in reaching our world? Are we being effective in impacting our communities? Are we being effective as the church? And like I said, we cannot avoid these questions. As this is a quote from the novel, it says, we seem to draw back from anything that promotes power, strength, success, abundance, fruitfulness, or help. We draw back from these things. We don't seem to confront these things. And in doing so, we actually protect ourselves from having to answer some hard questions and give ourselves an excuse for not impacting our world with the gospel. And so these questions that we pose tonight, that we're pondering tonight, is important that we face because if we protect ourselves from the answers, we're giving ourselves an excuse. We're giving ourselves a way out. And we have no excuse. We cannot keep avoiding these questions. We cannot keep dodging these answers. Because if we do not ask and act on the answers, we will remain far below the level of life we are promised and called to. So if we ever want to live in the life that God has promised us, if we ever want to live in the life that God has called us to, we have to face these questions and we have to act on the answers. And so if the worship team can come up, I'm getting ready to close out. And so the end of every chapter of the novel has this take action section, and it's really great for application, for applying what we just read, what we just talked about. And the avoided question that we need to face tonight is, how does our life stand out from the rest of the world? Are we being effective? Are our lives distinct? Are we living up to the life that God has called us to, that he has promised us? As scripture says in 1 John chapter 2, 6, that those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. And so our call here for every believer is that we need to live as Jesus did. And if you were to ask those around you, would people say that you live like Jesus? How would your life be different if you lived more like Jesus? What habits would you break if you started to live more like Jesus? What things would you do? What things would you not do? And how would you change the way you interact with people if you truly lived like Jesus? And I know these questions are hard and that they're tough to swallow, but tonight we need to take a moment of just self-reflection and we need to seriously consider these questions. Are we set apart? Are we different? Are we living up to the calling that God has for us?
and be honest in your answers and be willing to change and act accordingly. So let's not just be hearers of God's word, but let's just be doers of God's word. Like, don't just take what I'm saying tonight and just go home and do nothing about it. But what here in this moment, as we get ready to go into worship, as we get ready to go into altar, that you just consider these questions, think about these questions, apply it to your life, and change accordingly. Change whatever you need to. So if everybody can just stand in this place. So they're going to sing a few songs, and I'm going to pray. But if these questions are just causing a stirring within you, let's take this moment of self-reflection to think about these things, to think about what we need to do differently and what we need to change. And so I'm going to pray. We're going to go back into worship, and you can come up to these altars and pray if you want to. You can pray at your seat. You can worship however you want to respond, but I encourage you to respond somehow. So, dear God, thank you for tonight.